Business Report. My name is J.R. Gonzalez. I'm your host. And this is the very first episode of the Latino Business Report. We're going to be covering business, people, and issues of the day from the Latino perspective. On episode one, we're studios. We have Pauline Antone, the current executive director of Tamak. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. We also have Sam Guzman, the current chairman of the board of Tamak. And we have Joe Morin, the former president of Tamak. For those of you who may be wondering, TAMAC stands for the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. Um, Pauline, let's start with you. What is TAMAC, and can you tell us a little bit about it? TAMAC was started in 1975 by just a couple of gentlemen who said that, you know, with a, with together we can have a larger voice, and that's on what they did. And since then, there was only about 20. Now we have about that many chambers across the state, which equals about 15,000 members, but we advocate for over 600,000 Hispanic businesses in the state. So Tamak is a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in the state of Texas, but it's a, a chamber of chambers, if you will. It's a chamber of chambers. <clears throat> okay, and you have about how many chambers right now? We have right at 20 chambers and business organizations that make up Tamak as far as the board of directors and the direction, and their members would equal about 15,000. Okay. And being a chamber of commerce or a statewide chamber, what all do you all get involved in? What don't we get involved Good in? Answer. I think that's a that's the better question. <laughs> Good answer. Um, thank you, Pauline. Um, Joe, you were there close to the beginning. Very close to the beginning. From what I understand, you actually started at the young tender age as a young man of 33 years old. 33 years old. Back in 1984. That's correct. Can you describe Tamak? Tamak had only been around. It's what, started in 75? Started in 75 through um, actually uh, an organization called Ser Ambi. Uh, it was part of uh, the national organizations, uh, Ser, which stood for Service Employment Redevelopment. Uh, they, through a grant from Department of Commerce, started up. Tamak, and okay. spun it off into a private nonprofit organization that continued to build on the number of chambers across the state of Texas. Joe, let me ask, do you, do you recall, I mean, what was the genesis of all that? I mean, they gave a grant, but what was the purpose of the grant? Were they specifically looking to start chambers to organize Hispanic business owners? What were they doing with that? The, the main purpose was to support Hispanic businesses, and the thought was, how could they best do that? And uh, there were already a handful of, at that time, Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce, San Antonio, Dallas, um, Fort Worth, Corpus Christi. And they looked at that as a model. They saw how effective that was in bringing together Mexican-American businesses uh, throughout the state. And the, uh, the effort was made to go out and organize Chambers of Commerce through Sedambi and eventually create this umbrella organization, Tamak. Now, once Sedambi did that, they stepped away. Tamak took over with its own board of directors and continued the task of supporting chambers and creating new chambers. But it was through the funds of Sedambi that actually allowed it, Tamak to get It started. was seed money. Seed money. Yes, yes. They're, it, they're it, still not supporting today. They're not. Okay. They, they, uh, they, it, it only lasted for a little while. Well, let me ask you this. You mentioned a couple chambers. Um, and a lot of people may not realize, but Hispanic chambers actually started here in Texas. The very first ones were in Texas. Is that correct? Absolutely. I believe it was the San Antonio Mexican-American Chamber that is the oldest, and certainly in the state and possibly in the in the nation. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they, they've been around. I think for it was San Antonio, Corpus Christi, and maybe Dallas. 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 Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm kind of proud of that fact that actually Hispanic Chambers started here, and there's probably close to about 300-plus Hispanic Chambers across the country today, if not more. And that the model still works. You know, I mean, uh, I, it must have been back in the 1920s when the first uh, Mexican-American Chamber was, was uh, formed. And here we are in 2017, and we still those chambers are still very strong and more coming along. Absolutely. Sam Guzman. Yes, sir. You have had the distinct privilege of being chairman of the board, what, three times now? We're going on three times. You know how the saying goes, I, once I start going out, they pull me back in. <laughs> and, 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 and actually, I, I do it willingly. Uh, it's, this is just a great organization. Just, It's very interesting how it started because the, the essence of seed money is what? To get something started and for it to keep going, right? Correct. It doesn't always happen that way. There's seed money, and and it kind of goes by the wayside after a while. Well, this particular organization took the seed money and ran with it, so much so that after, what, 45 years, 42 years, uh, I would say it qualifies as an institution. There you go. Because, because it's been around so long, and, and it's, do, it's doing essentially the same kind of thing that it started to do. And at the same time, it, it fostered, it created... And then, and then, for all intents and purposes, a lot of the chambers are on their own now. They don't need to mock, essentially. I mean, they still participate and so on and so forth. But they're a force uh, of their own in their own community and, and dealing with the issues of, of their, their community, i.e. Houston, Dallas, and so on. So what you're saying <coughs> is that as the said Omni money, seed money was there, and things started growing, the chambers became self-sufficient, started growing, and actually doing what they were supposed to be doing. Exactly, in, in their own uh, in their own community, uh, what they felt was the issues uh, germane and needed in their community, uh, they're doing it now. We we want them to be part of Tamak, and a lot of them are, but some of them are saying, "Well, you know, we we thank you, Tamak. Uh, you know, you helped us develop. You you provided support uh, throughout the years, and now we're kind of doing uh, what what we're supposed to be doing. What the essence of Tamak was to begin with, and so and that's the beauty of it. And after so many years, you, you have to you have to wonder you have to, not wonder you have to really acknowledge that after so many years there must be something something's working that, that's working. Well, let me ask you this question, and this is for Joe or Sam. Probably I'm going to leave you out of this one because this is kind of a tricky one. You know, back forty something years ago, when Tamak started in 1975, there was definitely a need. The argument can be made, and I'm looking. This isn't rhetorical. I'm looking for an answer. Is an organization like Tamak, or is Tamak relevant today? And if so, why? It absolutely is. You know, back in 1984 when I started, the issues were access to capital, uh, procurement, business development. Tell me that those same issues aren't the very same. I was going to say, Pauline, what are the what are the priorities today? Yeah. Those exact same ones. You know, every so, so day. the times change, the people change, the issues remain the same, and. So the question then is, okay, so who's addressing those? You know, and it is those uh, Hispanic chambers and, and Tamak providing overall support. So, you know, very much so because de- developing the next uh, generation of Hispanic uh, entrepreneurs, you know, wh- who does that fall on? Obviously individuals, but in terms of overall, who, who has that as a mission, as a goal? Tamak, the local mm-hmm. chambers. And one of the things that the organization has been real good at is advocacy. By that I mean, uh, for example, at the, at the legislature. If there's legislation that is not 
friendly for businesses, for Hispanic businesses or businesses in general. Uh, we go there and we testify and we work with our legislators to impress why that particular legislation, piece of legislation, is not good. That which is good, we support, and uh, we, we get our chambers uh, to support it as well. Uh, our legislative advocacy piece remains extremely strong. We are well regarded at the legislature uh, because we've been there. Uh, for example, we were, uh, we were pivotal at the inception of the HUB program uh, many years ago. The HUB program, the Historically Underutilized Business, which uh, is, is all about procurement and about providing uh, opportunities to more and more uh, historically underutilized businesses. Now, the HUB program, Sam, is that like a, is that like a, a set-aside <coughs> program for minorities, or what is that? It's not a set-aside at all. As a matter of fact, you know, the, 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 set of, the term set-aside with respect to that program is kind of frowned on because uh, set-aside uh, connotes a certain uh, uh, way of doing business, and it, that's not what it is. It's providing opportunity by virtue of providing information, providing uh, workshops, providing training, getting people to become certified to be hubs and do business with, in, in particular with, with the state agencies. For example, here in the next couple of months, we're going to be signing uh, um, uh, memorandums of cooperation with, it started out to be 16, I think this time it's going to be more like 18 or so. And that means that the major uh, state agencies and universities are signing up with us saying, we want to do business. We want you to do our, be partners with us in terms of us being able to open more opportunities to your members and uh, to to Hispanic or, uh, people that are certified as Hispanic uh, underutilized businesses. Yep. Pauline, can you explain a little bit what is this hub, Hispanic or historically underutilized businesses? How did that come about, and was there a study done, or how did some how did how did that cat, that term develop? Actually, out of due respect with the gentleman that we have here today, I'm going to bounce this back over to Mr. Joe because I know he was there. I Joe, was not. Joe was there, huh? <laughs> the, uh, the hub program w was started many years ago. Our organization, TAMAG, got involved back in the uh, mid-'90s. Uh, we made a, a very strong effort to back legislation that would put into statute this hub program, a program geared to uh, historically underutilized businesses that were not participating. We wanted it to be more than just good effort, volunteer effort. We wanted it to be in law that state agencies would make an effort, you know, a very proactive effort to look for vendors from the minority communities. And it was a massive effort. And quite honestly, Tamak was at, 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 at the point in the lead of that. Many organizations participated, and I don't want to take credit away from anybody else, but I will say that Tamak was in the lead role during that time. And the legislation was passed in the wee hours of the morning, late in the session. Um, and against all odds, I may say. Um, a lot of resistance for it? A lot of resistance. The vote was tied in the House of Representatives. Uh, whatever the margin was, it was tied, and the Speaker of the House cast the deciding vote wow. to enact the hub program that we know today. Okay, and uh, and in fact, uh, one of the individuals that uh, that uh, worked for me at the time, uh, Celia Israel, is now herself 
a state representative. So she worked on that as a staff member for Tamak to pass that bill. I'll be darned. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that say, <clears throat> why do you need something like this? And I think a lot of people forget, and either Joe or Sam shed a little light on this, this just didn't come out of nowhere. An actual lawsuit was filed, I think, and there was a, a study. There was a legal study mm-hmm. done to show discrimination and prejudice in procurement opportunities. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, it all had to be based in fact and there had to be research that was done on it, a study to make the case and and rightfully so. That that's fine. It the uh, the, the facts, you know, supported our stand on the issue and in the end the Texas legislature did pass the uh the first hub bill and it's been in in the books for now over 20 years. That's a long time for for a statute to to withstand it. And uh, to my knowledge, no one has made a serious challenge to it. So there's something to be said for that. Now, the, the, um, the, the essentially the uh, the requirement was to have a disparity study, as we're calling the study, and that way it would uh, it would comply with regard to why we were able to have that kind of a, a program in existence. As long as you had a disparity study that showed essentially the disparities, you were okay with it. Uh, well, not totally free of challenge, but 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 uh, chances of being challenged were remote. So the study actually proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was discrimination when it came to to purchasing. Yeah, call it discrimination, call it uh, uh, lack of opportunity, but but nonetheless. It wasn't an even playing field. It, it, not at all. As a matter of fact, it was it was pretty desperate, you know. Okay. Pauline, I know you're pretty up on this, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you happen to know off the top of your head what kind of dollars we're talking about is what the state actually spends and how many is, how many of those dollars are actually going to hubs right now? I could be a little bit off on my numbers, but I believe that in the in the budget – for 2015, that the state budget was something like 171 billion dollars, and that the the Hispanic businesses received less than four percent of those monies in in procurement opportunities. And African Americans was, was less than two percent. So even though we have this statute, mm-hmm. it's not a guarantee. Correct. And it's been on books for 20 years. We still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go, but we've made a lot of <coughs> progress. I mean, 4% doesn't sound like much, but let me tell you, it's a long way from 0%. Better than zero. And uh, we're moving in the right direction. More businesses are getting signed up to do business with the state. More of them are learning how to. It's not just a matter of getting certified or getting on the list. I mean, it's a business. You have to compete. And part of that process is educating our businesses on how to do business, how to run a better business, a more efficient business, a competitive business. Well, it seems to me, and I know I get the question a lot, and I think we put in perspective, those state dollars are actually our tax dollars. Correct. So if you look at it, if you have, what, 38% of the population of the state is Hispanic, another 12% is African American, then you add Native American and other categories, I mean, we're almost past that 50%, but yet as business owners is doing business or procurement opportunities with the state, we're still getting very, very, a very small amount. Women are included. And, yeah. and women, women are included. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you this, Sam. And uh, <coughs> as women are included as a minority group, <coughs> I think that's great, and, and I applaud that effort. But I also heard that there's a lot of stuff that we're talking about white 
females, Anglo females that are putting in for the program that are actually sometimes fronts for their husbands' businesses and using the hub program to go ahead and get get those get those contracts and enrich themselves. I think I think some of that may go on, uh, Jr. I'm not sure that that's wholesale. Okay. Uh, it, it is certainly discouraged, uh, and it could happen, but um, uh, I don't know that it, it goes on uh, wholesale. Uh, to the extent that it does, obviously, it takes away from the program and the opportunities, and that could that could happen. Okay. And, uh, well, I know that last legislative session, I mean, <clears throat> Tamak was over there, and they added a new a new category into the hub program, which was going to be veterans. Disabled veterans. Disabled veterans. Mm-hmm. Pauline, can you talk about that a little bit and how that came about? That there was just as far as added in last legislative session. But there's one thing that I want to be able to add to as far as on what Mr. Joe said was that the state agencies, this here is a good faith effort. It is not a set aside. It is not law. It is as far as a good faith effort. And the good faith effort is, is that the state agencies, their goal is, is to be able to spend 20% of all procurement funds to be able to go to a hub business. However, that's, you know, sometimes it's not, it's not possible. And in referring to what Mr. Joe said is, is that you have um, these businesses that are certified, then what? They need to be educated on how this is a business. They've got to be able to go out there. They've got to compete to be able to get the business from the state. It, it's not an automatic uh, contract to them. They've got to be able to go out and compete. And I will say this, Jr. I mean, every agency that participates in the HUB program has a coordinator, essentially an advocate. Mm-hmm. And I know most of them, and they are strong advocates for historically underutilized businesses. They want to see work go out to mm-hmm. these small businesses, and they really work hard to get that information out there. Sometimes it's not a match. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's business, you know. And But it's not for lack of effort, and it's not for lack of sincerity. Um, it's a process. It's a process of of uh, building up your businesses so that they're able to compete, mm-hmm. uh, growing and, and learning how to uh, put a bid, how to put a, a successful bid, and, and how to keep at it. But uh, I, I think the system is 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 in place. You know that you know you've got advocates in all of these participating agencies mm-hmm. that really want to see things work out for us. Joseph, the, the, um, um, the the good faith effort part has gotten to be more for real. It used to be that it was just a kind of a wink, a perfunctory type of yeah, of, of, of a process to where you know people would go to meetings and uh, maybe have workshops and so on, and they would call that a good faith effort, but little results. Uh, there's more and more pressure, so to speak, uh, to to get results. Uh, one of our Biggest champions by far is Senator West, and uh, and so he's he's kind of they call him Mister 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 Hub I think yeah yeah <laughs> I believe and it and so and so anyway uh, and and uh, so so it's getting it's getting better and better and better and better throughout the years but but thank you for the shout out to to the Hub coordinators because they do uh, you know they do they do a yeoman's uh, they do. job. And, and and little recognition, you know. I think we we uh, we awarded them at the last uh, Tamak conference in El Paso uh, because because of what they do, because of their efforts, and they appreciated it. It was just a small token of recognition and appreciation, right. but nonetheless, they they're there. Now, Pauline, um, you'd probably know best. How many 
with these hub coordinators, and a lot of them have um, relationships with Tamak. How many state agencies and universities are currently involved with Tamak that are trying to increase their hub numbers? With the memorandum of cooperation, the signing, we will be signing with, uh, it looks like, 19 this time. 18 for sure, possibly 19. It started out with just three agencies, and now we're, we're definitely in, at 18 uh, state agencies and universities. Um, now, there is something like 256 state agencies, if I'm not mistaken. So we're talking about a small number, but these these agencies really, really are working very hard. And... I'm going to give a a huge shout-out to the hub coordinators as well. They are extremely passionate about what they do. And every time that we work with them, I'm very proud to be able to work with them and and to provide as much resources and opportunities that I can to them because they are. They're working for our communities. And wonderful people. They they sincerely care. So that's, you know, as far as the hub coordinators. Um, But the 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 agencies they really go out of their way they come in and the biggest thing is is the education that's one thing that tamak is very good about we have workshops constantly in fact you know we have a quarterly meeting this coming weekend and that's a part of the morning is is how to do business and how to become certified because the more education that you can get and then that gives you a better playing a better spot in the playing field it's it's a process, and and to the extent that that you learn the process and you follow it, uh, and uh, with fidelity, then then you know you have more and more. It's more more fruitful for you. But, but you know, although that it's a, considering uh, the the number of state agencies, although it's a smaller number, we're talking about some of the major agencies. Mm-hmm. We're talking we're talking about the University of Texas, Texas A and M, the Department of Transportation. Uh, and Parks and Wildlife, uh, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parks and Wildlife. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm talking. It's, about, it's a good list. Well, it's a, not only a good list. We're talking about the major agencies. I mean, when yeah. you're talking about the University yeah. of Texas in terms of the dollars that they spend, and Texas A&M, and these people are serious. You know, the the thing about it is though, you have to step up to the plate, mm-hmm. because if they put out the information and and we don't get people to take advantage of it and go through the process and learn it and 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 in fact get into it. Well, it's for it's 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 for not you know because uh, we don't get there. And yeah. it's, but it's 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 not it it's not an easy sell because people say, well, you know, yeah, you do business or you try. There's a lot of red tape and so on and so forth. Yeah, it is, but you know, it, it's it's worth it once once you get it going. Yeah. And to Joe's point, I mean, we started off with what three three agencies back in the day. Yeah, and not to be discouraged by the numbers that have signed up. It's the old eighty twenty rule. You know, twenty percent of the agencies do eighty percent of the business procurement for the state of Texas. So if you've got, we 20, want that twenty percent. Yeah, that's all you need. You know, but, but for example, I mean, on the on the on the uh, the, the Department of Facilities. Uh, what's the, what's the name of that agency? Official name? Texas Facilities Commission. Yeah, they're putting out. What is it? A billion dollars? One billion dollars. Uh, with a B, a billion. With a B, for for renovations and grow and uh, new buildings and so on. The capital complex. I think is it thirty percent that they're designating for hubs? Or, uh, they they're actually very aggressive in yeah. going with the thirty percent. Yeah. So that uh, that's significant. That is significant. As we're looking at the the actual procurement out there, I mean, <clears throat> trying to speed it up a little bit to more current time. Sam, I was reading. Uh, a press release that Tamak went out that that had your name on it. I saw there was some opposition to the proposed twenty percent uh, tax on on imports from Mexico. 
Want to elaborate a little bit on that? Well, that was my twin brother. That was your twin brother. (laughs) (laughs) The other set was what? That was actually me, and you know that, Jr. Because you helped me put it together. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was. uh, You know, talking about the twenty percent taxes that once that's being proposed to be imposed on imports uh, from Mexico, Uh, and the purpose of that is to generate funds to build the the wall, a wall, Uh, and obviously we came out against it because. We feel that that's going to be a tremendous, uh, not only imposition, but it's it's going to be a tremendous chilling effect to the whole process of import-export to the extent that uh, people are not going to want to to work in in, in that direction to to export. And uh, obviously, uh, for the purpose of building a wall, I mean, you know, Oh, with an import tax, when I mean, you're paying for it. Well, who, who's, 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 who's really who's, paying? I mean, it's, a, yeah. it's the end consumer. I mean, we're the paying consumer? for it like we're yeah. paying for it twice. J.R., I wanted to mention that, you know, back in the mid-'90s, when <clears throat> 90, um, 96, uh, Tamak was one of the strong supporters of NAFTA. And back then it was very controversial to have this free trade agreement that nobody was familiar with, not not on this scale, and Texas, of course, was going to be at, at the forefront of this. We were either going to be the, the major beneficiary or the major victim in, in this, uh, this trade agreement. Um, after a lot of consideration, and we had our own internal discussions, shall we say, about whether we should, should support this or not, we came out very strongly and got all of our chambers behind it, got our national U.S. Hispanic chamber behind it, we believed it. We we believe today that it has far exceeded expectations and is far more beneficial uh, to our nation's economy than in any way detrimental. And you know, I think it's important to know that we were there at the very beginning. We're not some Johnny Come Latelys that just yeah. picked up on this recently. I remember because I was relatively new with the organization, but I remember those days. And Sam, you were telling me the other day, um, I believe in a story that it, that when it came to NAFTA. That it was eleventh hour. I mean, Tamak kind of came in. We came in strong, but there were some questions about it. Well, as Joe was saying, I mean, it, it wasn't a slam dunk uh, for us. I mean, we we gave it a lot of uh, consideration uh, and asked a lot of questions. I, I remember uh, to this day that uh, uh, we were not in yet, and they really wanted us to participate. Uh, and uh, Henry Henry Cisneros in San Antonio called us. And said, "Hey, uh, we're, we're going to have a session on it. Can you all come down?" And it was for the purpose of trying to to, to get us to support. And and we sent off a letter, a, a ten point letter to the president at the time, uh, uh, President Bush, and uh, asking the questions. You know, Bush, why, se- Bush Senior, right? Yes, why we were concerned. And so it was. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't an easy call for us, but it was a necessary call. That after we vetted it as completely as we could. We came out and supported it, and I think it had a lot of impact with regard to the passage. So Tamak didn't go into it blindly or just supporting oh. it to support it. Correct. Well, I think it was a good move because even today, I think uh, with the trade agreement and NAFTA, that Texas actually ends up with a surplus every year. Absolutely. I think we're the only state that ends up with a surplus, but we do end up and, with a surplus. And we're okay with that. That's fine. That's fine. Um now, Joe, and I'm bringing up the NAFTA thing on the wall because, I mean, these are kind of current issues, but Tamak's relationship with Mexico goes way back. Oh, it does, and, and far even beyond Tamak, you know, the uh, the Mexican-American chambers uh, that are now called Hispanic Chambers of Commerce uh, 
were started by the Mexican consulates way back in the 20s and 30s. And San Antonio certainly was, Dallas was, and there may oh. be a few others as well. And those became the, the genesis for the Hispanic Chambers of Commerce that gave impetus to Tamak. Um, so that, that relationship has extended for the better part of a century. Um, and, of course, trade with, with Mexico has, has always been important. Uh, Tamak recognized this as well. Uh, San Antonio was way ahead of us. Um, we got into it and brought the other chambers in as well to taking trade missions to Mexico, to Mexico City, other parts of, of Mexico, uh, for the point of conducting business. And that was something new to everybody. You know, I mean, we'd been going down there as tourists for, for m many, many years. And so we were used to acknowledging a sort of, you know, uh, cultural exchange, a, a uh, tourism-based uh, relationship. But we changed. We changed the business model. It's like, okay, now we're going to talk about doing business with each other, buying and selling. And that was new. That was new. That, that was uh, unique. And, and it took us a while to get the hang of it. But I know that there's been many trade missions between the chambers and uh, Mexico over the past 20, 30 years. And that continues to strengthen. And you know what, Joe? Uh, we're reviving that at, to the, at, at this very moment. We're reviving that in Tamak. And we actually have a strong uh, agenda uh, going forward with regard to the, those trade missions that we started when you were there uh, again. And uh, we're, we were just talking about it uh, in a conference call we had last week about about getting them going again because they're productive. Well, I think it's important. I mean, not only not only they're productive, but you have one of our country's largest trading partner. In today's political climate, there's a lot of hesitation, and I think as Tamak has been on the the forefront in the past, it's a good opportunity for um, Tamak to to be on the vanguard of this effort again trying to strengthen those relationships. Politics is politics. It was business is business. And I think that if you look at South Texas alone, if, if my statistics are correct, that along the Lower Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, close to 40% of the land owned in the Lower Rio Grande Valley is owned by Mexican, Mexican nationals as far as the real estate and the houses and everything. So there's a large influx. And you look at <clears throat> on any given holiday, a holiday weekend, especially around Christmas time, the, the amount of money, and I know that the, the economy not only of Texas as a whole, but in other parts of the country, is dependent on that gateway of people coming across. Uh, as you look at that, I think it's important that, that organizations, I'm glad it's doing this, to mock, strengthen that relationship because at the end of the day, it's people buying from people. You know, and, and then, of course, we shouldn't forget that uh, uh, us being uh, Mexican-American as well, a lot, of, a lot of people, it's familia. It's part of the family, you know. And so we we can't we don't forget our culture and, and our roots. And I think that's important too. Is that well, well let me ask you this. And I was going to ask it towards the end of the show, but I'm going to ask it now. Um, the question I get this question a lot, and I have kind of an answer. I'm just kind of interested to see what any of you three how you're going to answer it. Is why does there need to be a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce? Why can't the chamber just join the Greater Chamber and everybody get along? Well, I'll take a crack at it. Take a I crack mean, at it, Joe. Uh, that was a question that was posed to me in 1984 um, because there's a great unmet need, and it's been historical in nature. Uh, it, it hasn't been unmet yesterday or, or last week. It's been un, unmet for decades. Uh, Latinos, Hispanics have not been participating uh, 
in business and in commerce and in entrepreneurship and the numbers that, that are associated with the general population. So where is the support structure to facilitate entrepreneurship? Where does it exist? Uh, it exists in large measure with the Chambers of Commerce. In partnership with other organizations, I should add, okay? No, no chamber can do it all. No one organization can do it all. But, but who's dedicated to helping nurture the next generation of Latino entrepreneurs? Or the current one, for that matter. It's the Hispanic Chambers in partnership with other organizations. And in terms of the fastest growing uh, segment of businesses, I mean, the, the Latino businesses are, are among that, and particularly the Latina businesses. I mean, you know, they're, they're growing in leaps and bounds. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, but in a lot of ways, I almost feel that that question is, is getting to be rhetorical because, because you know, it, it didn't make sense because the Hispanic chambers have brought so much to the table and to the growth and to the economy that to ask, why do we need it? But yeah, people still do. Uh, I understand that. But but what is their motive? I mean, you know, uh, Joe explained it perfectly as from a business standpoint, but yet sometimes that explanation is not enough. So then you have to wonder, well, why are you still asking a question? I mean, we live in a competitive world, you know, in a, in a free market. Why is there a McDonald's? Why is there a Burger King? Why is there, you know, a Lutheran church? Why is there a, a Catholic church? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, organizations uh, galore of, of all kinds. You know. Well, here's an interesting here's an interesting fact for you that I don't think a lot of people realize is we have the Hispanic chambers or started off as Mexican American chambers, then Hispanic when it became a word. Um, it kind of seemed more politically correct or more inclusive. I think is is why a lot of organizations change to that. But I would say and feel very very safe in saying about you're talking about thirty five to forty percent of membership in a lot of your Hispanic chambers are not Hispanics. We're, we're, talk, we're talking about Anglo business owners who are joining Hispanic chambers because... Why, Pauline? Why do they do it? Because the food is great. <laughs> the, food is great. <laughs> the parties are wonderful. <coughs> but here's, here's a question for you. In a lot of these communities, you know, people ask, why is it necessary to have a Hispanic chamber? Well, in a lot of these communities, the question is, why is it necessary to have a greater chamber? Because there are some Hispanic chambers that are larger and more. Well, well Pauline, tell us about uh, uh, our good friend Juan and, and, and Colleen and what just what they just accomplished in terms of being recognized. You know, there in, in Colleen, there's a small group of people that, that they started a Hispanic chamber, what, it was five years ago, I think. And here recently, they were recognized by the readers and by the entire community of Colleen as being the best chamber of commerce. It doesn't say Hispanic. It doesn't say Mexican-American. It says chamber of commerce in central Texas. Because of the services they provide. Because of what they're they do. doing for the community, yes. And I think that's kind of what I was looking for when I, I called on Pauline, is that <clears throat> there is a need. As you have greater chambers, you have chambers working stuff, they're helping, they're working with EDCs, they're bringing big industry to the area, they're doing a lot of good things that are necessary. But at the same time, who's watching out for the small guy? Mm-hmm. Where there's, I f- there's a lot of uh, non-Hispanic uh, business owners that are seeing a greater value in joining a Hispanic chamber because there's those workshops that you were talking about. There's that training. There's that mentoring. 
there's a sense of of sandwich familia i mean there's a, this better sense of camaraderie and whether you're hispanic whether you're anglo african american it doesn't matter because it seems that we just seem to be more accepting as hispanic chambers of everybody because we understand the struggle we understand small business and to your point joe you know i like to i feel that hispanics and latinos are very entrepreneurial but yet we have not had that opportunity to learn and grow i mean sam you owned a business what a dry cleaners for for many many years i mean who taught you how to do that I think a lot of us are just learning for the first time and learning the hard way. We didn't have parents to show us how to read a spreadsheet or a P&L. We didn't understand about, you know, taxes. We didn't understand about this stuff, and we learned the hard way. And by evolving and growing, I mean, that's kind of Tamak. I see that's kind of Tamak's responsibility is to find those uh, next generation of entrepreneurs and provide them the type of training that they do to, to grow and develop. You know, the Chamber started as a grassroots movement, quite honestly. You know, the, 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 there were no corporate members among the first chambers. These were all mom and pop shops, uh, self-employed people. And, you didn't and have AT and T sitting no, on the table. No, you, you didn't. You know, the, these <coughs> were these were driven by needs, by the needs of of these businesses to find new markets. Turned out to be each other. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, do business among each other to help each other. Uh, it was grassroots. It was self-help. Uh, it was cultural, no question about it. And so, you know, the, the chambers have involved. But I think the fundamental purpose of the chamber still is to support small businesses. You know, that, that's the common denominator. And uh, surely other businesses have realized the importance of joining these orga- organizations. They know that's where the market is. That's where it's going. So why not be a member of the local Hispanic chamber and and take advantage of, of some of those contacts and networking. I mean, because you can be a member of several chambers. Absolutely. I mean, there's no rule that says you can only join one. Well, and some of our corporate partners have recognized the, the value, and, and not as far as just to be able to be a, a market for them, but also as far as to be able to give back in the community. I mean, one of our oldest, and, and I'm going to give a shout-out to one of our oldest partners, is Coca-Cola. And then Walmart and Verizon, you know, they were there almost from the very beginning as far as, and Coca-Cola, I think, was there from almost day one to be able to help with the community. And and they're enlightened. Uh, These are people that are enlightened, uh, understanding, realizing uh, what what it means and and the benefit they get by being sponsors and contributors to Tamak and the local chambers as well. And and some of them have gone away. Some have come back. But some of there's a mainstay like Coca-Cola and and uh, uh, well at that time uh, Southwestern Bell now AT and T. Those are some of our, our main sponsors that have been with us all along. And 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 they're with us. Obviously, you know it, it's it's a good relationship. But they understand why they're with us. They get it. They get it. They yeah. get it. Well, folks, if you just joined us or listening, you're listening to the um, Latino Business Report. We're here with. Uh, Executive Director Pauline Anto, Chairman of the Board Sam Guzman, and uh, former President uh, Joe Moreno. Better known as Mr. Tamak, as which Mr. I dubbed him uh, many years ago. Is that Joe is Mr. Tamak? That's right. Okay, so Joe, have that change in your driver's license. I will, absolutely, proudly. Okay, we're going to be we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back.
back to the Latino Business Report. My name is J.R. Gonzalez. I'm your host, and we're here in the studios with Pauline Antone, Sam Guzman, and Mr. Tamak, a.k.a. Joe Morin. Guys, we were talking during the break, and I can't believe it. We started adding up how long we've been in Tamak. And Pauline, you, your little handy-dandy calculator, you said what? Over how many years? Well, I was five when I started. Okay, just FYI. We'll that. But it, we, with the four of us right here, we're looking at 110 years of experience. 110 years of Hispanic Chamber experience. Hispanic well, chamber. Let me let me add though, Jr. Because you know we've been talking about who we are. I'm not sure that we explained who you are uh, in terms of your particular career with in in this arena. Uh, you started as as a member of the Austin Chamber. <clears throat> became the chairman, became the chairman, then became chairman of Tamak, then became chairman of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, then became president and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and then came back to Tamak, and now you're landed here in beautiful Buda. Doing a podcast. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sam, thank you for that recognition, but, you know, as all of us around the table, it's in your blood, as you say. They pull you back in. You just—it's a passion for it, and and I know that um, as I do other things in my career, that that I just keep gravitating to to chambers, especially Hispanic chambers, because of of some of the need that we talked about. And you know that gives us a segue <coughs> for what you said we wanted to talk about. That's some of the accomplishments and results. Yeah. I, I, I think yeah. some of the accomplishments. Joe, you brought up something that um, I thought interesting is is we were talking. As Tamak evolved and it grew from from nothing, from the from said Ambi to the as it goes, there was always pushback. There seemed to be pushback. There was resistance, sure. and even today, there's some negativity, if you will, when we're talking about sure. Hispanic chambers. And I liked your answer, Joe. How, how how did you deal with that back in those days? We just ignored it. Quite honestly, we pushed through it. I mean, I'd had this discussion with Pauline earlier about you know was there pushback? Absolutely, there was pushback. Why do you need a second chamber? You know, the greater chamber serves all needs and so on and so forth. And then you ask, well, tell me about how many uh, members that you have that are Hispanic-owned businesses. Well, we're not sure. Or what are their needs? Well, we're not sure. And so in the end, we just pushed through and did what we had to do and kind of ignored the background noise and and pushed through and, and did what we had to do, whether... You know, everybody was on board or not. And, I mean, I think you'll never get everybody on board for anything. We, we talked about that in terms of advocacy and leadership. You know, uh, this discussion I had with Pauline earlier, you know, if you say nothing, if, if you do nothing, you'll be nothing. You know, you're going to have to take a stand at some point, do what needs to be done, and suffer through the criticism, which you will receive, I guarantee you, um, but better that you receive that for doing something that you wholeheartedly believe that you know is right than to stand by idly and letting things uh, happen and you're outside the picture. And, and you know, the, 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 one of the, several of the chambers, uh, I can speak about, for example, uh, Brazoria County. Mm-hmm. They are in the middle of smaller communities and they all have chambers. And sometimes those chambers have meetings, and they exclude. They do. Bazoria County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. But still and yet, this particular chamber, as, as Joe says, they, they push through it, and believe me, they are well regarded by the powers that be 
and the leadership because of the impact that they're having on the community. Uh, not not just in, in, in business, for, for that matter, but in education. And so uh, they're right in the middle of, of, the, of, the, of, of the activity, yet a lot of times they're excluded, but they don't allow themselves to be excluded. Ed, uh, yeah. Sam, I, I know about the chamber you're talking about, have had discussions with their leadership as well about this particular issue. And the advice I gave to them is the same I would give to an individual or a person don't assign your value to somebody else or some other organization. Mm-hmm. You're not worth what they value you. You're worth what you value yourself. So in a particular case, I remember there was a high-level public official that was invited and um, to an event of other chambers but not the Hispanic chamber. And what my advice is, you know, next time you invite them to your event. Okay? You invite that high-level official and you be the judge of who else you want to invite. Take charge. And, and we got involved in that. We wrote a letter to that high, uh, high uh, uh, that official. You know, we wrote him a letter and saying, you know, since you're going to be there, this organization didn't get invited. Why don't you stop? We took a position on it, right? Uh, from from Tamak and and uh, Gina Aguirre. What's what's her middle name? Gina Aguirre Adams. Adams uh, is the executive director, uh, doing a, a real good job mm-hmm. there. Against sometimes. The odds, you know. Yeah. But then you have also situations like in Lubbock. Lubbock was one of the founders of Tamak. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I remember. And, and yet, uh, here about, I don't know, about eight years ago, uh, six years ago, whatever, uh, they were co-opted to join the, uh, and I call it the Anglo Chamber. Um, and, and by the way, our chambers are called greater chambers as well now. Because they are graders, the Austin, Austin, uh, Austin, greater the Greater Austin, Austin Hispanic Chamber, Chamber of Commerce, and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Just and another so, set of initiatives. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, uh, so they were uh, they 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 got they got uh, pulled into the to the Greater Chamber, and that's where they are now. Uh, but uh, they don't like it. The, the community doesn't like it. But they they haven't had the, the wherewithal. Uh, to be able to 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 start up again, although they want to, and there's been a lot of talk about it, they haven't really got gotten that. We may be playing a role in, in with regard to that. We just have to spend a little bit of time in doing so. that. But but um, they lost they lost there. And I think Sam, you bring up a point that there's a lot of as the Hispanic market continues to grow, I think there's a lot of the greater chambers that are seeing we want you know, those, those Hispanic-owned businesses under our umbrella, where before they really didn't care, nor did they even want us. We weren't even invited, and many times today are still not invited. But as the market and the Hispanic business market continues to grow, they're seeing a value. So I can, I'm, I'm sad to see that Lubbock actually kind of closed down their Hispanic chamber and, and merged with the other chamber over there, because we both know the, the small business owners aren't getting the representation that they need or some of the resources. But also concern is here as of late, uh, Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, one of our original Hispanic chambers, over 80 years old, just merged with the greater, or with their Anglo chamber, if you will. Pauline, what, what is the name of their chamber now? Now it's the United Corpus Christi Chamber of Commerce, and they didn't actually merge. They did something a little bit different. What they did is that the Hispanic chamber and the greater chamber, if you will, the, the community chamber, they they merged as as and formed a new chamber to where that's why they call it the united chamber to where they brought everyone in yeah their their situation is is somewhat different from the lubbock because because of the the demographics in corpus christi uh 
mm-hmm. which I mean, a lot of those, a lot yeah. of the leadership in the greater chamber are, are Hispanic, you know, already. And so their situation is a little bit different, but but still, and yet, <coughs> the the Hispanic chamber that merged, they just they just got to be on guard to make sure that they don't get uh, diminished in, in 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 some way it's or another. Swallowed yeah. up, yeah. And and then and then we have uh, another real good partner, uh, the Laredo Chamber of Commerce. They're not a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, but they're still a Tamag member. It's Laredo, and they're all Hispanic down there. It's Laredo, son puros hispanos, puros mexicanos, ¿no? Claro. And and that makes you know to the point. <clears throat> so, as as the um, Tamak model has been around for a long time, and Joe, you mentioned it. I think uh, a lot of people just don't realize how many times this model has actually been duplicated. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, during my time with Tamak, uh, <clears throat> you know, we were looked upon as as the uh, premier state association among Mexican American or Latino chambers of commerce. Uh, recognized by the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce as, as the top state association. And, you know, it was uh, it was a privilege to serve at the time, but, but it was good to receive that kind of recognition and, and honors. I mean, and, and not that we were seeking them. I mean, we were doing our thing, and, and we aimed high, and we got a lot of results. Well, to your point, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, but California basically modeled their statewide Hispanic chamber from Tamak's bylaws. And for, there, yes. They used Tamak as a model. Yes. New York. I know, uh, New York did it. I know Florida, because I, I flew out to Florida, showed them the Tamak model and how to duplicate it over there. Mm-hmm. So we're talking California. We're talking New York, uh, Florida. And to your point, Joe, is USHEC, the United States Hispanic Chamber mm-hmm. of Commerce. And Sam, as you know, I'm intimately familiar with that organization. They didn't come out anywhere. They were Tamak was sitting at the table when they when they formed. Is that correct, Sam? That is absolutely. Could you correct. Give, give us a little background on that? Well, yeah. As much as I know, uh, there's there's a debate that it was started in Kansas City, uh, but really, really, the record shows that nope. it was started. Uh, it was nope. started here in Texas. Lubbock. Yeah, and uh, Nelson <laughs> Rodriguez uh, out of Fort Worth was the first uh, the president of the organization, and uh, <clears throat> they they. I mean, we can we can talk about our issues with regard to USACC, and you know, it's 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 nothing overwhelming. It's just that they do things differently than we would like for them to do, uh, particularly with regard to the way they elect their board, uh, which is not by the membership. Mm-hmm. They they essentially are appointed and they select them who they want. It's, and there's a there's a a debate going on right now because we we elect our. Our, our memberships elect our, our officers and our board, and uh, we have a, we have some concerns with regard to that. And we we sure. we've uh, we've uh, and we've, we've lasted them, for forty two years. Yeah. That's right. <coughs> so anyway, yeah, we'll claim that we started U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Well, now, and it was at one of our conventions, <coughs> the one in Lubbock, if I'm not mistaken, and using as far as Mr. Joe letting me know is is that. <coughs> that it was in Lubbock where all of the, everyone sat there and met to discuss USHCC. Kansas City, whenever they go and claim it, it is mostly because I believe that's on where they had their first convention. So that's on where the or the paperwork was filed, but it was actually at a table and at one of our conventions. And the Tamak bylaws were used as a model mm-hmm. to develop the, the USHCC um, bylaws. Well, it's interesting in that uh, as in 
said, I mean, I used, I'm a former chairman of the board and president and CEO of that organization and proud to have been so, but I think that what's going on currently is gives me a little pause as to their, their form of governance. And, um, of course, we're watching closely to, to see what we can do to, to, um, to wish them well and for that continue. However, as we look at Tamak, it's been the same model for, for, for many, many years. Well, in addition to that, Gerard, just a little piece of that. <clears throat> Our growth is, you know, there's been, a, there's been a debate as to whether Tamak should have memberships from individual memberships from businesses, and we've, we've kept it to where they need to belong to the local chamber if there's a local chamber. And if it belongs, by virtue of that, you belong to Tamak, but you have to belong to the local. You can't come directly to Tamak. The USHCC doesn't practice that. Uh, they, 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 they let individual members join them. And, of course, as opposed to go, go join the mock state chamber or go join the local chamber, they don't practice that. We do. And, and that has to do with support and growth of the local chamber, uh, first and foremost, sure. which is what we stand for. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, we do have individual memberships, and I'm going to put a plug out there, but only in the yes. communities that there is not a Hispanic chamber because we support our chambers first. Well, I think as we look at it, with the evolution of the organization itself, you have to make changes in the growth. I mean, as we look around the table with the exception of Pauline, us around the table with 100-something years' experience, we need that fresh blood. We need that young entrepreneur. We need that rising young star you know, business owner to come into our ranks and give us that infusion of fresh blood and, and ideas because if this organization has sustained itself, we've already established it's relevant. And it will continue to be relevant for a while longer. And I think um, even more so in today's uh, political climate with the rhetoric that's being passed around, with things with Mexico, with things with the wall, that we're more relevant than ever before. I mean, I think we really need to, to take a stand and, and articulate some of our thoughts from the Latino perspective as opposed just to hearing what's coming down the pike from Washington or some of these other places and not just disagreeing, but, you know, I don't think Tamak has ever been one to, to advocate for a boycott or go out and march. It's kind of like we'd rather take care of our business around a, a boardroom table. We're a class act. Uh, and, you know, so are you saying, Jr. that the uh, people around this corner, uh, around this table, uh, are not fresh blood? Is it unfresh blood? Or well, I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm saying we're seasoned. We're well seasoned. Now, uh, and Joe, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but... I saw some pictures of you when you used to attend Southwest Texas State University. You were a bit of an advocate. I mean, you were you were activist. On oh campus. yeah, very much. Chicano. Yeah, you, you were out there. Was a member, a proud <coughs> member of, of Mayo Mexican American Youth Organization. Very active in uh, the uh, Latino organizations there, um, and proud of it. You know, I mean, uh, we left a bit of a legacy there. We were also very much involved in our community. So we, mm -hmm. the, the college is situated on a hill and can be quite removed from the community, particularly the Latino community. Well, we got off the hill and went down into the um, barrios and got involved with uh, Latino youth, with uh, the school system. We helped elect uh, local school board members, city council members. Um, you know, very proud of, of the... Uh, the the time uh, I mean and certainly I wasn't alone by far there was a number of other great folks that that joined us and yeah very proud of that time your wife to my uh, wife your is wife well. today was, is uh, we were there together and, <coughs> and yeah yeah my hair was uh, 
much longer, much darker, and much thicker. So uh, I, I can relate. I think the only one that has still kept their hair here is Sam. I mean, geez. <laughs> yes. Sam has a great head of hair. This is this is podcast radio, so they can't see it. Uh, so as, as, we're, as we're looking at this, and there's there's always been a need, and I guess what I want to just kind of throw on the table for some discussion is what we're seeing and what we're hearing. I mean, if we stay silent, Sam, thoughts? Well, we must just stay silent. We can't afford to stay silent. Just for our own dignity and uh, sense of who we are <clears throat> and what we're here for. Uh, there's a saying that goes that the most important day sometimes in people's lives are when they're born. And then the, ne- the second most important day is when they realize why. And so we need, we need to be cognizant of the fact as to why we're here. Why is it that we are still doing this? Uh, there's a call for that, but, uh, but we need more of, a, of, our, of us, you know. It's like you say, I mean, we're <laughs> like it or not, we're getting older. We need to have the leadership that follows, up, uh, follows us. Uh, to be able to pick up um, and step up to the plate and pick up and go from there because there's still a lot to be done and it's getting scary yeah. uh, you know and and so what are we going to do about it I was at a session with Southwest Voter uh, a couple of months ago and the discussion was a similar discussion and really really and truly uh, I think when it got down to the bottom of it uh, it has to do with maybe going back, maybe not to the extreme that that Joe was at the time when he was in school, but going back to to, to grassroots and having that kind of activity, and, and actually it's going on right now, uh, so much so. But uh, it, it has to do, I, I think, we, if, if if we if we just sit back and let it happen, we're going to be sorry, and. Uh, and we're, we'll never, we'll never, we're going to lose the years of advancement that we make, and we'll never get them back. And it affects a lot of people. <clears throat> it affects, it affect, it affects the, the the young mothers that are here working. Have been here for twenty years, and all of a sudden they get deported, and they leave children that were born here in the United States behind, and they're and 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 they're back in Mexico. By themselves, uh, you know, maybe not even speaking the language. Yeah, and, and the, yeah, they're in a foreign country now, you know, and all, and and their 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 violation was that they came over here because they wanted a better life. There was a violation. So what's happening is that, you know, yeah, we there's a lot of people that need to go back. I mean, the people that are doing uh, the crimes, but you see. If you really look at it and you're truthful, the amount of those is, the percentage of those is very small as compared to the 11 million or so that are actually here. Right. And so, and and yet, it seems like the attempt is to, to criminalize more and more, even though the crimes are such as what I just mentioned about this lady that got deported. Her, her, her crime was that... Uh, she came across illegally uh, 20 years ago, just seeking a better life, and she, she was trying to raise her children. 
But she mm-hmm. wasn't a criminal. She'd never been convicted of anything. She just... And so all of a sudden, she's deported. So, and that's just one story. Well, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of other issues with regard to what we need to do. And and you know they're beyond business, but at the same time, we can't ignore them completely. And but, it, but it affects business. Sure. I mean, it affects business. And and <clears throat> I'm not speaking for anybody here at the table, but I don't think anybody here is opposed to a secure border. I don't think anybody here is opposed to sending back criminals and drug dealers and convicts and rapists. I don't think anybody here wants to say, hey, just because you're Mexican or Central American, Guatemalan, El Salvadoran, you have a free ride to come into the United States. I don't think anybody's saying that. I think what really bothers me is when you look at the root of the problem is we need good, comprehensive immigration reform. But some people don't even want to mess with that. They're just seeing that that's another way of amnesty. They don't want to go through the effort and, to your point, criminalize everything. Whether there be sanctuary cities, and now there's you know legislation going out there. Uh, and, Pauline, I think the HUB program will come under attack one more time, as, it, as it always does. But when we're talking about beefing up the border to a point where it's, it's uh, pretty, pretty much uh, militarization of the Rio Grande Valley, I mean, to that, that's, that's not good either. It's costing the taxpayers millions of dollars when there can be some other things actually done. And this so-called, and I'm not even sure what to call it, this vision of a, a great wall that expands across the 2,000-something-odd miles border of Mexico, not only is that physically impossible to build, but you know what a waste of, of, of time and money. There has, there's other ways that, can, that the same thing can be accomplished. It seems what's completely lacking in this is common sense just a sit down discussion to talk about what what our common goals are regardless of your perspective mm-hmm. you know and it, it seems to be a game of one-upmanship to see how much more absurd you can get in your thinking and your proposals and that's what's causing all the turmoil rather than rational people getting together and talking common sense about what we truly believe you know um no one at this table is espouses what what you had mentioned about an open border or you know not wanting to get rid of criminals that that come into this country illegally um, at the same time I'm not seeing any sort of, of of rational approach to this the immigration issue nor does do, nor do I see a desire for anybody to have that discussion. And that's what we need. Until we get there, then it's it's going to be the back and forth. But how do we get the? How do we tone down the rhetoric? How do we calm people down? Because it seems to be this. Uh, everybody is very angry. I mean, it's, you're yelling. There's back and forth. There's protests. And I, and I can see why people are getting angry because I know I often get angry. But to your point, it has to be that common sense, which we realize that common sense isn't that common. Mm-hmm. But have some real talks, whether it be guest worker programs, whether it be certain, do, do, well, is there certain programs out there that could actually work? And I think, uh, Joe, what a lot of people don't realize, and this was really bothers me, is they point to Mexico. But a lot of the people coming across aren't from Mexico. They're from Central America. They're Guatemalans or El Salvadorians. And you look at it, the actual decline. The United States of illegal immigrants here, at least from Mexico, is actually on the decline. It's going in the right direction. Fewer and fewer, but yet it seems to the the rhetoric of that there. It's it's like it's an epidemic. Like you know, tens of thousands of people are spilling across the border unchecked every day. 
It's not the case. You lead. I mean, there, there's no short-term sol- solution to this. But, you know, it's, I used to, back in the 80s, talk about you have to speak up. And these days, it's not nearly, you have to lead. You have to lead by example. So if you want that discussion to be at a common sense level, then, then I applaud what, what Tamak has done recently, you know, to talk about the economic impact of the changes that are being proposed, the, the uh, increased import tariffs and that sort of thing, doing away with NAFTA. Talk about it on a rational, you know, uh, sensible level, but loudly so that people yeah. can hear you and, and broadly so that a lot of people can hear you and keep that discussion at that level and lead. Needs to be a continuous message going forward, and that's what we like. The radio shows, the thing we're doing now, because the people that are antagonizing the situation have those things going. I mean, galore, and then and then of course, from the standpoint of what Joe said, lead and, and leadership. The administration in place right now is espousing. Expo- a lot of negativism, a lot of scare uh, tactics, a lot of a lot of uh, mm-hmm. just just things that that agitate the populace as opposed to uh, trying to look for solutions. They're looking to blame and and uh, and scare, you know, and, and that's what's going on right it's now. It's scare tactics. I mean, just <coughs> correct scare tactics to rile up a, a base or yeah. a community to. But but we don't have we don't have the 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 uh, infrastructure such as radio shows, newspapers, uh, and so on and so forth, to be able to put across the message that we need to put across so people get the opposite message all the time. You know, and I agree with you, Sam, and this is what's, <coughs> this is what's frustrating to me. As you try to be logical, as you try to approach this from a pragmatic point of view, people are looking, oh, your last name is Gonzalez, you're brown, so you're, you're already on this side. I mean, they take this adversarial-type role instead of listening, going... You know, what I'm saying is important. I have some points to make, but it's like you tune out. There's also a thing, whether it be a wall or whether it be militarization of the of the, of the the border, over 40% of the people here undocumented didn't cross the border. They came with visas. They came in airplanes. They came legally that overstayed. So it's kind of like there's, there's a chunk right there. The, the negativism overwhelms all of that. You're, we're, we're caught in describing the... Minute detail, but the issue is much broader. The fear is much bigger. Do you realize that there's more? The biggest rise of undocumented people coming to the U.S. is from Asians, mm-hmm. not Hispanics. And then out of the 11 million plus they claim that are here, and I'm not doubting the figure, okay, I'll go with 11 million plus. How many are Canadians? How many are Europeans? How many are from other countries? Oh. But it's a, like it's a demonization of Latinos. If your skin is brown or you, if you, if you have a, 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 a Hispanic sounding last name, you know, forget it. You know, and then two, let me just say this, what frustrates me is, is I've traveled in different parts of the country where you don't see Hispanics, they think I'm Middle Eastern, they want to think I'm Arabic or something, I go, jeez, where does it end? It's just this constant fear that has been instilled in people uh, that bothers me because a lot of it's unfounded. Well, yeah. and a lot of the incitement of the fear that's going on, whenever you put something out as simple as what we just sent out, where Mr. Guzman went and says, hey, you know, we don't want to have our taxes increased by 20%, basically pay for the wall not once but twice and probably thrice. We put a simple press release out. 
based we, on economics, on, based on business. On, based on business, not based on color, not based on culture, not based on anything except for business. We put that out, and you know what? It was so amazing because that the fear has been incited so much, they assume that there must be something else. So I received so many emails. Now, a lot of emails, hey, thank you. Thank you for, for being the first organization to stepping up and saying something in a positive way. But then you get those who's going, oh, well, uh, that just means that you, you, you must not want the border to be secure. No, I just don't want to pay for that wall two or three times. Joe, you're going to say something? It was um, in relationship to leadership. I mean, you, you, you've got to... You know, you, you've got to keep broadcasting that message, and, and Sam alluded to the, the major networks and the major media, but, you know, there's a work around those things, you know, it's called, <laughs> you know, social media, you yeah. know, and, and uh, it's Maybe we ought to start a Twitter account. <laughs> you know, I've heard some people do very well with that, you know. But, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, maybe a, a poor person's, uh, uh, media access, but it's effective. Uh, it's all about winning hearts and minds, folks. It's all about that and about telling your story and in a way that's accepted. And, and, um, you can go the, the fear tactic angle, but, but I think eventually it comes back to bite you mm-hmm. if you take that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, putting out a sane, rational, um, you know, logical approach to this eventually will win the right hearts and minds. Some people you'll never convince. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, so be it. Um, but it is it is about persistence as well. well. Like I said, common sense isn't that common sometimes. It isn't. But, uh, you know, what, what, what also bothers me as we, as we look at this, the, this country, the Hispanic population, according to all statistics and trends, we're going to double in size one more time. Mm-hmm. We're about 16%. We're about 57 million Hispanics in the continental U.S. today, and that that population is going to double. Right now in the U.S., I think it's close to, uh, what, 30%? 30% of all Hispanics are under the age of 18. Mm-hmm. We're a very young group. We're evolving. And whether it's Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Independent, it doesn't matter, but we need to get people in the process, sitting at the table, actually giving it from our perspective. Because if this is going to have any type of change, we need that Latino perspective in there and it to be heard because a lot of people just aren't listening. They're just going with their fears. Yeah. And the, the the thing that that really bothers me is, well, one, I'm worried about the dreamers. You know that that whole stuff. The whole dreamers. Yeah, to get that uh, deferred status, go ahead. Here's my name, address, telephone number, where I live, and here's everything. But you know, it would be very easy for the administration or somebody to mm-hmm. to say, hey, here's a roundup list right now. Yeah. We can go to it. When people say, well, it's the law, a rule of law, rule of law. Well, you know what? Slavery was law. You know? Um, it was still Suffrage wrong. was a law. You know, a mandatory internment of Japanese Americans was law. That doesn't, because it's law doesn't mean it's right. I'm not saying the laws aren't correct. I'm just saying we're at an age, at a point, where the laws need to be revisited and good, solid, common sense, comprehensive reform as opposed to throwing rocks and spreading fear like, oh, my gosh. You know, if we don't do this right now, this is going to happen. That's just absurd. And then sometimes the rule of law is a matter of convenience. If it's not convenient, even though it's a law, and then you say, uh, certain people say, well, uh, you know, I don't have to follow that law. 
Uh, it's a matter of convenience. It just depends. Some, and some people feel that uh, they're beyond that, you know. And, and so it's just, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of work to be done, let me put it that way. And so uh, somebody, somebody needs to continue doing it. Uh, we we're doing. That's what we have Pauline for. We're, yeah, we're doing our part. Yeah, that's right. We're doing our part, but um, it needs to be a lot bigger uh, and a lot more comprehensive and a lot more involved. Well, gentlemen, we're almost out of time, but you know what? I sincerely want to thank thank you for being here. Hopefully, this isn't going to be the last because there's some good discussion. We're not going to solve the problems of the world, but at least we can talk amongst ourselves, talk on podcasts like this, where people can maybe listen to a different perspective. Pauline, I know that Tamak has several events coming up. <clears throat> we have every year you do what? Your Women of Distinction? Let me go down real quick. Go as right far ahead. as on our calendar events, besides our quarterly board of directors meeting, this, which is going to be this weekend in McAllen, Texas. Then we have at our quarterlies the, on the Friday, we do nothing but workshops for the leadership and then also for our, for our business bases there in the community. The following day, we have our board of directors meeting, which I must say, there are some people that go, my gosh, they just get so loud. No, we get passionate. That's the thing. At those board meetings, they, there's a lot of passion going on. But at the afterwards, big hugs and brussels, and we walk away as friends and family. So we've got our quarterly board of directors meeting. The next one um, won't be until June. And then on May, and I'm sorry, March the 30th at the Capitol, we will be having our memorandum of cooperation signing that we discussed earlier, and that will be 18 or 19 state agencies and universities. That will be from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., in the auditorium, it is free, and we want you to come and, and see us, and I promise you we'll be sending out a lot more information on it. Then, of course, we have our, our convention, which will be in Irving, <coughs> Texas, which will be our 42nd Annual Convention and Business Expo, and we are looking at probably the second or third week in August. Uh, working on right now trying to get the best price on the hotels that we possibly can. And, uh, and then in October we will be having our sixth annual Women of Distinction Awards luncheon where we recognize 12 or 13 incredible, fabulous women that have really done a lot in their communities and with their, with their work. Those are our big highlighted, uh, events and so but we always have a lot more workshops and regional training and and we have so many programs that we're going to be starting this year hey watch out we are we are coming in and 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 that light is is not a freight train it's not a freight train anymore let me just mention that um uh, in the area of education and tamak gets involved in, in providing support and testimony there is a vicious frontal attack on public education at the legislature. They're talking about vouchers, they're talking about charter schools and so on and so forth, and taking money from, from the, from the, public, the public, p- public schools to put in there. And, and you know, the, essentially what's, what's happening, 52 to 55% of the children in public education right now, uh, 50, 50, 52 to 55% are Hispanics. So, so they're taking away from, our, from that system and they're making it a, a real inefficient system, or more inefficient than it might be already, and as as we they go forward, for the purpose of putting the money in vouchers and and charter schools and and, and other kind of uh, uh, just taking it away from education. So there is a serious uh, 
frontal attack on public education, people need to tune into that, particularly pe- people that and parents that have their children in, in public education. Which I mean, you know, we're we're sitting here in in Hayes County. This this uh, this these schools are some of the best. Uh, obviously, the Austin ones are some of the best. There's good education going on for the children yeah. there. Those children deserve to have uh, equal funding, adequate funding, uh, sufficient funding from from uh, from the taxpayer dollars that that are garnered through a lot of different sources, particularly property taxes, uh, and yet. No, it, 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 what's happening is the opposite. They're, they're, they're draining that particular uh, 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 funding source uh, for other things. That's about you. Uh, Sam, you were on the school board, right? Yes, I For was. a number of years? Yes. You're absolutely correct, and that's one of the things maybe we can serve um, for another show, but I'm glad you brought that to our attention, that it is. I mean, education, I've always said, is the keystone of any society, and without it, how are we, we going to move forward? And if they're, in fact, if we're looking at, I'm not going to say it. Just let me paint the picture. If what you say, and yet 50, 55% of all the kids in the public school system are Hispanic, and now there's a frontal assault to take money out of public schools and put it into private schools and charter schools, what's that actually saying? Yep. What is that saying? Well, with that. Um, guys, once again, thank you so very much. And, Joe, to your point, for all the years you put in, for the 33 years plus of, of supporting Hispanic Chambers, thank you. Sam, thank you. Pauline, thank you for taking the point. Pauline, Anton, what kind of Hispanic name is that? I'm, I don't recognize it. Antonio? <laughs> Pauline Antonio. You know, it it comes maybe through the Greek Isles, so I guess maybe it's from the Spain area. Aguanta la güera. La la güera. La güera. Your grandfather came to this country from uh, Greece, right? From Greece. Uh, what, was, what was the name? Antonopoulos? Antonopoulos. <coughs> and just shortened it over there at Ellis Island a little bit. Well, whenever he went into the military, they go, you know, that's just too long for a name tag, so let's just <laughs> chop it a little bit. <laughs> Polly, how can more people find out about Tamak? Where would they go? Well, there are several places, and, of course, on Facebook. We're all over Facebook. But the best place, please go to our website, www.tamak, and that is T-A-M-A-C-C dot org. T-A-M-A-C-C dot org, and we try to put a lot of information on there. There's also on Facebook. Please like us over there. Um, And I guess that we will try to go and get a Twitter account so that we can tweet, tweet each week, too. And how can they hear this program? They can hear this program actually by going to the website, and we're also on SoundCloud and iTunes. And for the record, today is February the 13th, 2017, the very first episode of Latino Business Report. I want to thank you for listening and thank everybody for being here. To find out more about the Latino Business Report, you can actually go to the website, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Thank you very much, and we'll hear from you next time. 